0: Morning, friends. Um, if we may, please open our Bibles to the book of Psalm chapter number ten. We'll read the entire chapter, Psalm chapter number ten. I'll read the entire chapter um, so that we appreciate uh, the text in its entirety, but uh, please note that uh, the focus of my sermon this morning shall be from verse 1 to 9 only. But let me read from the English Standard Version. These are the words of God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself? In times of trouble, in arrogance, the wicked wholly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he passes them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with casing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. And hide in hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes steadily watch for the helpless. He legs an ambush like a lion in his thicket. He legs that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The, the helpless are Christ sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, you will never see it. Arise, O oh Lord, O oh God, lift up your hand, forget not the, the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you not mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Causes wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless. And the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Amen. This is the word of God. Allow me to pray. Lord, I come before you this morning. Oh Lord, uh, that you would be with me this morning. I acknowledge my unworthiness to speak for you this morning. But Lord, I pray that you would enable me that you would enable me to stand as an oracle and declare your words boldly and clearly. I pray, Lord, that I would not rely uh, on my strength or on my preparation, but I would rely on the power and action of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would be with my hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my sermon this morning is When God Seems Far When God Seems Far And before I go into our text this morning I want to start off by reading a famous quote by a famous 19th century philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche I'm sure some of you know him. And may you please listen carefully as I narrate this piece to you this morning. Uh, it is titled, um, "The Parable of the Man, and here's how it reads. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly. I see God, I see God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jammed into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. "'Whither is God?' he cried. "'I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now?' Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward, in all direction? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are bearing God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers, what was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned? Has bled to death under our knives. Who wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred claims shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here, the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. Here, the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. And they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last, he threw his lantern on the ground and he broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way. Still wandering, it has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars. And yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day, the madman forced his way into several churches, and there, struck up his uh, requiem and H&M deo And laid out in called to account. He said, oh, "Always, you have replied nothing but. What after? Oh, are these churches now, if they are not the tombs and sepulchers of God? This is um. This piece of writing." was written in 1872, in the 19th century. This is when uh, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote this, this famous work of his. And I, wonder, I want to point out, point out to us this morning that what Nietzsche describes here in this piece of literary genius, when he says God is dead, is what he is referring to is that belief in God is dead. And he comes to that conclusion merely by observe, observing the decadence in the, in the church. He sees the, the decline of morality in the church uh, during the 19, 19th century. And, and he perceives beforehand that this will in no time permeate the entire culture. And unlike unlike other secular atheists like Marx and Feuerbach, he looks at this in despair. He doesn't see the death of God as a cause of celebration. He knows what implications the death of God has in culture. He knows the moral decadence that flows from that. And friends, this morning in our culture we are witnessing the effects of what this feller saw and wrote about in the 19th century. In a very real sense, we live in a culture which seems as if God is really distant. When we see the wickedness in the world, the decay in morality in our culture, homosexuality, transgenderism, today we have men that think that they are women. the greed, the sensuality, the sexual pervasion. In a real sense, you can tell you can tell the sense in which God has become really distant. The belief in God has become dead in our culture. And it has been rightly described by some as a culture of death because that is what you get if you remove God from the If you remove God from the society, if you remove God from the pews, if you remove God from the schools, if you deny God, um, that is what you get. You get the murder of uh, 60 million unborn children in the United States uh, over the past five decades. That's what ensues, and we have been witnessing that. And frankly, friends, if God is dead in our culture, then morality is dead. There is no point, there is no standard. If God is dead, then truth is dead. Everything is pointless and we will see this nihilistic outcome, this nihilistic expression even as I go on with the the text. Because if God is no longer, if we no longer believe in God, what ensues from that is chaos. And friends, this is the question that the psalmist poses in this psalm. I want you to read verse 1 with me. It says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In this verse, the psalmist expresses an emotion which is a bit similar to what the madman in Nietzsche does. The psalmist observes his culture. He observes the happenings around him, the wickedness in his society. And this leads him to conclude that God is far. This leads him to conclude that God is distant. This leads him to conclude that God is hiding himself. And he lays that charge on God. He lays that charge that is often laid on God. And I want us to know that this is not the first time we see this kind of charge being laid on God. In scripture, this question is posed numerous times um, differently. Uh, there are slight variations to it but all are laying the same charge to God. Abraham asked God in Genesis chapter number 18 verse 25 he asked God, shall Shall, shall not the God of shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right he asked God that after learning that God was going to destroy Sodom he asked God if he would destroy the righteous with the wicked he's not the only one Job does a similar thing as well in Job chapter number 29 he perceives himself as a just man and is essentially requesting an answer from God as to why he was suffering as he was. Naomi, in the book of Ruth, called herself Mara because she felt God had dealt with her bitterly. Asaph, in Psalm chapter number 73, relays the same sentiment as well. Why, is, why does it seem as if the wicked are the ones are prospering? Why, is, why does it seem as if the wicked are prospering in the world? It's a similar complaint that the prophet Habakkuk raises in Habakkuk chapter number one, verses one to four. Let me just quickly read it. The book of Habakkuk, chapter number one, verses one to four. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, O oh Lord, It is the same charge as we are seeing that is laid on God over and over again. And in our day, we are common with statements such as, if God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? Especially, um, you heard people say this statement after COVID when a lot of people were dying, a lot of people asked this question. Even the question, that why do the good die young? Uh, people ask that question usually when a young, um, famous celebrity dies. Or here in Zimbabwe, you might, um, you might even be tempted to ask God um, if God cares for Zimbabweans. Suffering. Or maybe you have things that are happening personally in your life. You have lost a loved one. A lot of people are tempted to ask, why me? The why me God question. And to, and to be frank, friends, all of these questions at their core are essentially accusing God of injustice. They are accusing God of being indifferent to the plight of men. They are accusing God of being passive. They are accusing God of being distant. And we'll see why that is, um, even as we go on, why that is, um, that self-righteous charge on God is sinful. It is uh, frankly dangerous, friends. I want to highlight from scripture a couple of reasons why it seems as if God is distant at times. Why God distances himself from his people at times. Now, firstly, God distances himself and often withdraws his presence from his people because he is God and not man. Because he is God. He is a light man, that is why it is difficult for us to fathom why he would allow evil to seem as if it is prevailing, why it seems as if the wicked are prospering. It is difficult for us to fathom that because we are not like him. And what I mean when I say God does this because he is God is that there are certain attributes that are inherent in his godness which allows him to be able to do so for instance his sovereignty God's sovereignty simply means that he alone is the most supreme that means he subject to none he is absolutely independent and does as he pleases only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. That means, friends, he answers to no one. That that is what Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10 is referring to, when he says that my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And friends, this is basically how he responded to Job's inquisitions. Job never knew why he went through the suffering that he went through. God asked him, essentially asked him, who is this that makes noise? You know, with words without counsel. He asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you know where the sun sets? And that was enough to shut Job up. And... Friends, Frankly, it should also. Whenever you feel tempted to ask God why, remember that God is sovereign and that that should be enough to shut you up. God um, feels no obligation to explain himself to Job because he doesn't need to. And he doesn't need to answer to anyone, to any of those self-righteous inquisitions that are thrown at him by anyone. Another attribute of his is that he is patient, he is forbearing, he is long-suffering. In the Bible, God's long-suffering is often mentioned alongside his mercy. Uh, You see this in Exodus chapter number uh, 34, verse 6, Numbers chapter number 14, verse 18, Psalm chapter number 86, verse 15. And simply put, patience is really a display of God's mercy. And friends, because God is a merciful God who desires that all men be saved, he is patient with his judgment. And many times, it may seem as if he is taking long to judge the wicked or vindicate the afflicted. It is because he is patient is and he is long-suffering. The other attributes of God that also explains um, why God does this, why God um, uh, seems as if often is distancing Himself, is His omniscience and His justice. Omniscience means He searches the hearts of men. He knows everything, unlike human judges. His judgments aren't biased. And they are not based on hearsay. He has all the knowledge. And he is a just God. He will judge in righteousness. Um, uh, as verse 17 says, He has the right judgments. Secondly, um, and I won't draw much of this, but God also withdraws himself and make it seem as if he's decent to his people for his own glory. He does whatever he pleases for the glory of his name to the praise of his glorious name um, when he saves them. The Israelites I must have asked that question when they were uh, languishing in slavery in the book of Exodus in Egypt. For 400 years they were slaves under a wicked Pharaoh. But God was patient. And the Bible even says that even when the time for their deliverance came, he hardened Pharaoh's heart and the reason why he was doing that, it was for his glory. It was for his glory. The disciples of Jesus uh, once asked him, uh, when they saw a man that was blind from his birth, they were asking, uh, for what reason is this man blind? And Jesus answered them, "It is for the glory of God. He probably might have asked why was I born this way? It's so that the glory of God may be revealed. So God often withdraws Himself, and uh, may seem as if God is sad because um, it's because of the reason of His glory. And thirdly, He often does withdraw His presence. He often uh, distances Himself seems as if he distancing himself for our sanctification. Um, let me quick, uh, read, quickly read uh, the book of Lamentations, chapter number 3, verse 27 to 36. The Lamentations of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 3, verse 27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. Verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, you you will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to sub- subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Let me also read what the um, the London Baptist Confession of Faith says on it on this chapter 17. Of the perseverance of the saints. Chapter 17, paragraph 3. This is speaking about the saints. It says that, and though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, if their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hate and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. So even to his saints, he often allows them. He often uh, allows them to go into seasons where it seems as if God is distant, where it seems as if God has withdrawn His grace. He sanctifies them through that, through those seasons, even His people in the Old Testament. He would send His people into exile where they would be far from, from Him, from His presence in order to teach them a lesson. You see this all through the way in the book of our Judges. Whenever his people would be given into idolatry, the Lord would, uh, as it seems, it seems as if he abandons his people until they cried out to him when the pains of their sin, when they, when they suffer the pains of their sin, and God would uh, vindicate his people. So he often does this for his people's uh, sanctification. And that leads us to our fourth reason why God distances himself which is unbelief or idolatry. I want you to listen to what the Matthew Henry commentary says on this. God's withdrawings are very grievous to his people, especially in times of trouble. We stand afar from God by our unbelief, and then we complain that God stands afar from us. And that is what often happens. We stand afar from God through our own belief, and we complain that God stands afar from us. I want us to read Isaiah chapter number 1 verse 15 it also explains this the reason why God distances himself from his people Isaiah chapter number 1 verse 15 it reads when you spread out your hands I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers I will not listen your hands are full of blood Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. God is, is essentially saying that He hides His eyes from His people. He does not listen to their prayers because of their sin. Isaiah chapter number 59, verse 1 to 3. Behold, the lens, The Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save, or his ear dull, that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue... Matters wickedness. And it goes on and goes on and goes on. Um, and if you go ahead with this scripture, Isaiah chapter number fifty-nine, he gives a description of sinful men that is similar to what we read in Psalm chapter number ten, from verse from verse two up until verse eleven. And what we just saw in. Uh, Isaiah chapter number 59 is that the way that God judges sin or man's idolatry is by hiding himself as it were. It is by distancing himself, by withdrawing his presence and grace and his constraining power. David relates this in Psalm chapter 51 verse 11 when he says that cast me not away from your presence and take Note your Holy Spirit from me. God judges people's sin by withdrawing themselves. And friends, Romans chapter number one reiterates this as well, this very same point. And I want us to read Romans chapter number one together. Romans chapter number one, verse uh, 21 to 32. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal men, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the last of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and saved the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts Foolish, faithlessness, faithless, faithless artless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And we see clearly from this text that the way that God judges men's rebellion and idolatry is by giving men up. He, he decencies himself. He judges men's idolatry by restraining himself from men. He gives them over to a debased mind. And what follows when men is given over to a debased mind, what ensues is the moral depravity and decay described there. Homosexuality, all sorts of vile and sinful behavior. And friend, you should thank God for this morning, for his constraining grace. Because that is what stops you from being as wicked as you can be. Man is totally depraved, and if left to himself, man is totally depraved, and if left to himself, uh, will destroy himself. We will see that the most wicked um, of behavior from, from, uh, from him and. I want you to notice that we live in a culture where it seems as if God has left men to himself. Where it seems as if God is, is dead. And we are seeing the moral implications of that separation of the truth of God. Arasis Pro once famously said that atheists those that deny the existence of God the problem that they have is not an intellectual one it is a moral problem they know God exists they know God is not dead but they suppress that and deny that because they know that if they acknowledge the existence of God they have to live with the moral implications of that. They have to account for their sinful behavior. So they just pretend as if God is dead. They just pretend as if God is far. They just pretend as if they can go on with their lives and enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It is men in denial trying to suppress the truth of God and friends it is indeed said to watch uh, when you see all these people that are into the LGBTQ nonsense um, they are suppressing the truth of God they are in denial and friends that is the very same thing that is happening in our text in Psalm chapter number 10 from verse 2 to 9 The sound describes a man that has been given over to his sinful desires. A man to whom God has turned his face who tries to live as if God is dead. Who tries to live as if God does not exist. As if God is not watching. He tries to convince himself that. He holds on to that. That is the reason for his uh, wickedness that we see um, from verses 2 to 11. His wickedness flowed from that denial of the existence of God. We see in verse 4, uh, let us go back to our text, Psalm chapter 10. You see in verse 4, he says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In verse 11, it says that he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. In verse 18, it says that why does the wicked renounce God and say in seeing his heart, you will not call to our account? You see from this text that he has convinced himself that God is not there. And what we see described in this psalm from verse 2 up until verse 10 or 11 describes what happened in a man's life where God is far. Where God has hid himself, he describes what happens in a society that has distance itself from God like ours. This is what ensues because of that. Psalm chapter 10, verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked only pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. And here, in verse 2, we see oppression of the poor. The wicked wholly pursue the poor. And, friends, this is characteristic of every society which does not have a Christian outlook. Every society which does not have knowledge of God. There is oppression of women and children, which ensues, it is inevitable. It is said that today in our culture, we have these people that that claim to be advocates of human rights, of women's rights, feminism. We have these people that claim to be, you know, against patriarchy, yet they want to reject the Christian God. It is a contradiction. You cannot be against God and uh, be against oppression of women and children, be against oppression of uh, the poor, be against oppression of the minorities. It is a contradiction. If you are anti-God, if you are anti-God, if you deny the existence of God. If you are anti-God, if you are anti- His word by default, you are for the oppression of women and children.
1: That is what
0: atheism conceives. That is what a denial of the existence of God conceives. Verse three reads: For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 3A says for the wicked boss of the desires of his soul. Again, friends, this is also an outcome of this atheistic worldview, which denies the existence of God, um, which I, I, I alluded earlier, because it's all over um, Psalm chapter 10. All of this is coming from that outlook, from that perspective that he has, that God is, your God does not exist, God is not watching him. That that, that is where it's emanating from. And you see this boastful behavior playing itself out. And that is the natural outcome of denying God's existence. That is the natural outcome of being far from God. Man was created for worship. And in the absence of God, there is a vacuum that is left uh, Nietzsche calls it an empty space as I read earlier and because there is a vacuum that is left, some deity has to fill that vacuum and in our culture that deity is man secular humanism is the religion of man that is the religion of our, of our day man has been enthroned as God he has believed the lie of, uh, of the serpent in Genesis, to defy God, the, 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 the serpent um, deceived Eve to deny God and promise that uh, men will be like gods if they eat, uh, if they disobey God. And foolish twenty-six twenty-first uh, century man he believes this, he thinks he is like God. And we see this in the sex, this text, this verse, it highlights that the wicked boasts about um, another version says boasts about the things they, they want, he boasts about the desires of his of his soul. Like the rich man in the story of Lazarus and the rich man which Jesus told in the Gospels, they are making the sin of presumption. They believe they can do. He posts about the things that he wants to do. He posts about the things that he, he wants. They believe they can do so. They believe they can achieve those things, all of those things because they believe they are sovereign. They actually believe that they are God. Yet, Apostle James warns against that kind of behavior. In James chapter number 4, verse 18 to 16. He warns against uh, that kind of presumption. James chapter 4, verse 18. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such, in such a town and spend a year there and trade they make a profit. This, um, this is what the, the, verse 3 of Psalm 10 is saying. This boastful um, presumption that the wicked man has. And verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanish. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And that is what the wicked is doing in, um, in verse three a. Verse three b says, "The one greedy for gain chases and renounces the Lord." Um, I like what the King James version says about uh, about this text. The King James version says, "And the wicked blesses the one greedy for gain." I think that the King James Asian um, gives a more accurate translation of this text. Um, it reads that he blazes the covetous whom the Lord abhors, whom the Lord hates. We see that this wicked man blazes the greedy man whom the Lord hates. And friend, that is the wicked man's modus operanda. It is to go against the Lord. The wicked man's modest operanda is to call evil good and good evil. Romans chapter number 1 verse 32 that we read earlier says that not only do they do these shameful things but they also support those that do these shameful things. And, friends, it is also characteristic of the behavior we see in our day. We see this redefinition of morality, calling evil good and good evil in our society. And Nietzsche saw that outcome as well. He argues that if God is dead, then we have to redefine our morality. Since it is no longer based on the Judeo Christian worldview, he said this in the 19th century, and today we see its outcome in our culture. Morality has basically been redefined. What is now conceived as morally acceptable, morally acceptable behavior is being nice. The 11th commandment, as Bodhi says, thou shalt be nice. Being loving, uh, whatever that means. And often, when they say be loving, they mean, you know, be tolerant of everything. Being tolerant is what um, our culture considered morally acceptable. Being sensitive to the environment, climate change, being not judging, that's what uh, our culture would say. Because our culture has denied God, it has denied objective morality as a result. And because of that, uh, morality has become a matter of personal choice. That is the reason why you hear people nowadays say, My truth. There is no longer an objective truth. It's because we, we have denied God, we have suppressed the truth of God. Verse 4 reads, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, There is no God. And in verse 4, we see the interconnection between pride and um, atheism. We see the interconnection between um, pride and a denial of the existence of God. friend, the enthronement of self emanates from the notion that there is no God, as I said earlier. Because we believe God is dead, there is a virtue that has to be filled. So man has to enthrone themselves. Narcissism has been on the rise lately. In the early 2000s, the Times wrote a magazine um, with the title the me, me, me generation and they were referring to the millennials. The millennials are known to be the most self-centered narcissistic generation who have ever lived. It is the result of this worldview that deny the existence of God. We live in a narcissistic, um, in a narcissistic world, and according to the scripture, the scripture explains why people are self-absorbed. It explains the radical individualism we see in our culture. It emanates from, um, it emanates from this notion: they do not see God. It emanates from, um, from this denial of the existence of God. They do not see God because, um, it says that they do not see God. Because the pride, uh, the proud, does not see God because, friends, because the reason why they do not see God is because they believe themselves. They believe themselves to be God. Why would they see God? We have a culture that is telling men that. Uh, that is telling people that you are enough, looking into yourself. It's telling uh, men that the miracle is in you. It's telling people that you, know, you need to find yourself. It's telling people that you are a little God. Why would they seek after God? First Peter says that God resists the proud, He distances himself from them. And um, Psalm chapter 14 also um, repeat this same sentiment that we see um, that we see here. Uh, when he says that uh, the, the, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Pride is the foolishness which sells men. That there is no God, that they do not need God. The Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14 in Romans 3 when he is pronouncing how, um, how every man in his natural state, Jew or Gentile, is a guilty verdict against them before the judge of all the earth. Romans chapter number 3, verse 10 to 11. As it is written, none is righteous, no, 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 not one. No one understands, no one seeks of God. So friends, we see that this sound is here, it's, it's talking about all men, all men in their natural state. That is the reality of all men. They do not seek after God. They hate God. Amen. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. So all oh, his foes, he passes them. And here we see also, we see something also that, it, that seems characteristic of unbelievers as well, of the wicked. It seems as if the wicked prosper materially in this world. And Asaph relays the same complaint in Psalm chapter 73 as well. And even in our day, if you look carefully, it seems as if those that are wicked are the ones that are prospering. It seems as if those that are wicked have the material success. Success. And I think that part of it is related to to part B of of verse five, which says, "Your judgments are on high are out of his sight." Because for the wicked, God's judgment is out of his sight. He's willing to do anything in order to succeed. He's willing to tremble upon the poor, to steal from the, uh, from the poor, from the weak, to oppress the, the weak in order for him to be rich. He's willing to pay a bribe to succeed. He's willing to murder someone. He's willing to cheat in order to pass an exam, to defraud others, to scheme others, to prostitute themselves to get that promotion. His success is built upon the tears of others. His success is built upon a violation of the statutes and the judgments of God. In the book of Psalm 37, friends, it tells us not to fret ourselves because of evil doers. It tells us not to be envious of wicked people when it seems as if wicked people are prospering. Psalm 37 says that do not be envious of them, for they shall fade like grass, and they shall wither like green hair. It says that the wicked shall be cut off. It says that we should wait patiently upon the Lord. Amen. Chapter 5b, uh, it says that as for all his foes he passes them, he, he mocks those who disagree with, with him. He makes fun of those that disagree uh, with him, this wicked man. And we see this in our world today as well. In a world that has become increasingly hostile to God, it seems as if it's a laughable thing to stand on, the biblical, to stand on biblical convictions. If you hold on to biblical patriarchy, to, you'll be called an abusive uh, overlord. If wives submit to their husbands or maybe our homemakers, as the Titus 2, verse 5, our world derives them and says that they are slaves or doormats. If you take a biblical stance on sexuality or on marriage, you also be accused of not being progressive of being uptight, of not being tolerant, you will be mocked by our culture. And that is what the wicked man uh, does uh, that we see from these texts as well. It describes a world uh, which has distanced itself from God. Verse 6, it says that, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity, here again, we see this false comfort, this false security, which this man that has been abandoned by God tries to cling on. And just this Adam tried to cover himself with three leaves, tried to cover his, his shame. And friends, that is what materialism is. That is what the consumerism of our day is. It is a coping me- mechanism. Um, it is say that uh, we live in an age where people uh, no longer consume to live. They live to consume. They live to consume. It has become a coping mechanism because we have lost that which has the ultimate meaning, because we have lost that which has the ultimate purpose and security in life. We have now started trying to find meaning in things, in gadgets, to find our security in our wealth, technology, our comfort in our wealth. And Romans, it is all Romans 1 again, friends. It is because God has given us over that we now ascribe value to things which are created and worship them, worship created things rather than the creator himself. We give ourselves this false assurance because we have these things, because we have what uh, people nowadays call a soft life. We will not suffer adversity. We believe that we will not be moved. It is a false assurance, friends. It is is a false assurance that will send you straight to hell. Verse 7, reads, um, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And the Apostle Paul gives this also as an outcome of a people that is given over to a debased mind. In Romans chapter number 1 verse 29, they are filled with all unrighteousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, slander, gossip, reiterated as all in Romans chapter number 3 verse 18 to 14 which says that their mouths are open graves they use their tongues to deceive it's talking about sinful men it says that the venom of us is under their lips His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit. Their mouth is filled with bitterness and curses. That's what the scripture says. And if you do not believe this, uh, you should go on Twitter today and you see this. Say something critical uh, about, uh, here in Zimbabwe. if you say something critical about the opposition leader, you experience this. You experience how sinful men. Uh, their mouths are full of bitterness and curses, as the Bible says. Say something against homosexuality. Say homosexuality is a sin. You will see the wrath of the walk. Say something like wives ought to submit to their husbands and you will see it. And this is the world that we live in. The deception, the lies, It characterizes our age. Men are now saying that they are women in our age. We live in a lying age. People's mouths are full, full of deception and lies. In verse eight, it says that he sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He made us the innocent. He made us the innocent. What is striking about this verse is that the murder of the innocent is not done directly, it is done in a stealth way, it is done in, in ambush. They do not want to make it seem as if that is what they are, they are about, so they do it in ambush. It is done under the guise of uh, women's rights. It is done under, under, under the guise of giving women choice. My body, my choice, women empowerment. But it is what it is, fellas. Um, it is murder of the innocent. To date, since um, Roe v. Wade in uh, 1973, 60 million unborn children have been killed in the United States. That is four times the population of Zimbabwe. Think about it. The maiden, the innocent. It's characteristic of our culture. A culture that has been given over. A culture where God has distanced himself. This scripture rightly describes us. In the in our area, uh, they would not. Uh, they are made out of the innocent. It's also still. There are soldiers which killed innocent people in the in the CBD. Uh, sometime I think it should be two, two or three years ago. And they did it under the guys that they were trying to protect. Uh, the, uh, the infrastructure against uh, vandalism. They sit in ambush and made uh, the innocent. It is not done openly. In verse 9 as well, um, it reads, he legs in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He legs that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his nest. That injustice, that inequality, that operation of the the greed we we see in our day, all of this, um, as I indicated earlier, the wicked man does because he falsely convinced himself that God, um, according to verse 11, all of these wicked things that he does, he does them because he has falsely convinced himself that God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, And God will never see it. He thinks God is not watching, so he thinks he can get away with it. How deluded he is. It is because he has suppressed the truth of God in his mind, because he has killed God, as Nietzsche says, in his unbelief. And, friends, that is the dangerous outcome of of that. It is the utter evil we see. The utter evil we see in our te- in this text that we uh, just went through this morning. It's because people have denied God. They have convinced themselves that God does not exist. God is not watching. And normally usually people acts crazy when when they believe no one is watching. Usually people they act crazy when when they believe no one is watching. They act out of character. And because man now believes that God is not watching them. He's acting crazy. We see the evil that we see in our culture. We see the chaos that we see in our culture. I like how the psalmist then transitions in verse 12 when he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. He's calling God to action. And Asaph does the same thing also in Psalm chapter number 73, verse 20. Let me just quickly read it. It says, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rose yourself, You despise them as phantoms. And friends, in case you haven't heard, our God is a reason. What we have in the Gospels is the story of these particular sinful, wicked, violent men who also connived to kill. They killed the innocent, but this time they did the, the evil of all evils. They connived to kill the Son of God in a violent manner, which characterizes them. It is the ultimate evil. Christ suffered in the hands, in a literal sense, Christ suffered in the hands of wicked, sinful men. And he died. But friends, the the good news of the gospel is that he was raised from the dead. In Romans chapter number 4, verse 22 says, he was raised for our justification. His resurrection is the basis of justification. It is the basis upon which we believe that God will make things right. It is the basis upon which we believe that God will, one day on the day of judgment, Judge each man according to his works. As Romans chapter 2, verse 8 says. Psalm 73, um, verse 27 to 28, uh, which I alluded to earlier, it says that, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is God. It is good to be near God. This is also how the psalm in, uh, in chapter 73 it concludes that those that are far, those that have distanced themselves from God will be judged. They will perish. They will be put to an end. We have that record in scripture. Scripture says that over and over again. Psalm 73, verse 28, it says that, but for us, it is good to be near God. Oh, that he may not cast us away from him. Oh, that he will not be far from us. And when the prophet Abba raised this complaint against God, why it seems as if the wicked were prospering, God responded to him in, uh, in Habakkuk 2 verse 4 saying that the just shall live by his faith. By his faith. That was the response he was given. That was how God made things right. And it is, um, it is the gospel which reveals God's righteousness. As Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. And I want you to believe this wonderful news this morning. And be made right with God. Be reconciled to God. Be brought near to God. And maybe you are here this morning and as we are going through those verses in Psalm chapter 10 which describes the wicked. And maybe you might have not read that well, you might have mistakenly thought of yourself as the oppressed, as the poor and afflicted, simply because you are a Zimbabwe, simply because you are a Zimbo, and you are, you are poor in a literal sense, and you feel oppressed by our evil and corrupt government. Maybe you might have seen yourself in that light, and you believe you ought to be justified in God's judgment and you are also making these self-righteous inquisition, asking God why you. Please let me make it plain to you this morning. Just because you are poor, it doesn't mean you are righteous, unless you repent and believe. You also perish, as Christ says in Luke chapter eighteen, verse uh, one to five: "The just shall live by faith." If you do not believe in Christ, you are just as guilty as the wicked we described in Psalm 10. There is a similar guilty verdict upon you. That is what Romans chapter 3 says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous. There is none that does good. If you do not believe in Christ, you are just as dead. You are just as far as the rest of mankind. And lastly, uh, even though um, um, Nietzsche, even though I do not agree with his conclusions. But I think he properly diagnosed the problem. In the quote that I read um, in the introduction, God is dead because many has killed him. Many is responsible. We are the murderers of God. God does not change. He's the unmovable mover. He didn't distance himself. It is your sins which separated us from him. It's Isaiah 59 says, "His hand is not shortened that he cannot save you. His ears are not dull that he cannot hear your prayers." The problem is not God. When we ask, why uh, is there so much evil in the world? It is because of you. The problem it is not God. The problem is us. God is not dead. It is you. Through your unbelief. Through the wickedness of your sins. He is not the one that is hiding. It is you, Adam. God is asking Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? It is, it is us that is running from, running away from God. We are not uh, deist. um. We believe in a God that is distant. We do not believe in a God that is distant. We know that our God is near. We were saying earlier that there is not an hour that he is not near. Our God is not passive. Unlike Baal, As the prophet Elijah mocked, he has not gone to relieve himself. Our God is not sleeping. No friends, our God is active. He's the God of Elijah that answers by fire when we pray to him. He's not like the pagan deities. That live on Mount Olympias far away from humanity and are distant from the people no our God came down from heaven and dwelt amongst his people he humbled himself to the point of death he tore the veil of separation and gave you access to his throne of mercy he is near only if you could believe in him Now I want you to know this morning that our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? He was cast away from the presence of God the Father, is an escape God, is anophorie. He was cast by God on the cross on your behalf. So that you who was cast away from the presence of God, if you believe in him, you would be brought near. One should believe in Christ this morning. And lastly, maybe you are a Christian and at this very moment you feel far from God. Maybe you are in a season it seems as if God is distant, or you may have wandered from the fold of God. And I urge you to this morning, as you were saying earlier, afflicted, saying to Christ, Draw near. Christ is an open invitation. Come to me, oh. You who are heavy laden and tired, and I'll give you rest. The spirit of the bride says, Come, like the prodigal son, return, like the prodigal son, return, all wanderer, to the loving arms of the Father. Christ is, a, he sympathizes with us, he's a sympathizing high priest. Return to Christ. It is a fearful thing to be cast away from his presence. Plead with him not to uh, withdraw his Holy Spirit from you. I want to end this um, sermon in Numbers chapter number 6 with the benediction, Aaron's blessing from number 6, verse 24 to 6. Verse 24 to 26. The book of Numbers, chapter 6. These are my last words to, uh, to you this morning. Let me start from verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and the Son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, verse 24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious upon, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.